0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com.
1: Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health.
0: Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized.
1: Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
0: Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. My name is Chris Spangle. Thank you so much for being here with us. A big big election night. It was uh, somewhat of a surprise. but There were some certain surprises through the evening and into the next morning that we'll talk about. Virginia is getting all of the headlines, and joining me today to discuss this is Hannah Cox, one of my favorite libertarians out there, certainly one of the most preeminent libertarians, if not the most preeminent libertarian. Uh, Don't even argue with us on that, Hannah, right?
1: I don't know. There seems to be a lot of debate that I didn't try to start, so (laughs) I'm just trying to do my work.
0: (laughs) I know. I know. Well, that's your problem is you're just trying to do hard work and get along, (laughs) but you can uh, find Hannah's podcast based with Hannah Cox in any podcast platform and at hannahdcox.com. She also writes for Fee, one of my favorite organizations, and you can find all of her articles on her social media. Great Twitter follow as well. So thank you so much for joining me.
1: Great to be here, Chris.
0: So Glenn Youngkin defeats Terry McAuliffe. I mean McAuliffe. Sorry, Rush Limbaugh's gone. Hey, I can't. we
1: can forget his name. <laughs> yeah, I
0: know. Uh, I know. It's great. Like of politicians in general are, are are terrible, but he's exceedingly execrable. I mean, he's just one of the, one of the most unlikable. So I'm not surprised that he lost. But when you look at the race in Virginia and the Republicans winning a state, basically flipping it by 15 points. What are, what are some of the things that jumped out at you immediately in this race?
1: Well, I think it's funny. I didn't know this originally, but as you said, he's had a long tenure as a politician and has a really bad track record dating all the way back to the era of the Clintons. So it makes no, um, I'm not surprised to see that he ran a terrible campaign, given what we know about other campaigns from that camp with Hillary going down in recent years. I thought he did a pretty similar job. He really you know, maligned and talked down to the base he was trying to convince. He had a very elitist attitude. He seemed totally detached from the issues that voters cared about the most, and as a whole, he tried to make the race about Donald Trump, who has failed, who is no longer in office, and who most people are ready to move on and forget about. Um, he really tried to use that as his tactic. He tried to use some really dirty tactics, maligning his competitor as racist or a white supremacist. He got some help from you know, some people like the Lincoln Project and others on the left that even pulled this ridiculous <laughs> stunt where they tried to have these activists come dressed up as Charlottesville Protesters and he just really overplayed his hand as a whole. Um, so the entire thing was interesting to watch. You know, Virginia has been one of about five or six states that has really become a battleground state between Democrats and Republicans in recent years. It used to be a reliably red state. It seemed like it had flipped blue for a minute. Certainly, won um, Biden won it overwhelmingly in his past campaign, but now it's it's switching back to Republicans. So I think this is an election that a lot of people were using sort of as a bellwether for things that might be to come. And and so we knew it was gonna be a tough campaign, but I really thought the like sign of death for his campaign was during a debate where they asked him about parents' concerns over curriculum in, in the classroom, notably around Critical race theory and then also around um, sexually explicit material in the curriculum, which he had dealt with when he was governor. And he gave these really asinine comments about parents not needing to be involved in the classroom, which was just outrageous. And so, of course, um, I think that really stoked a lot of animosity towards him by parents. And and I think education became the dominant issue In this election, I think that's going to be true across the country. I said this on Kennedy a few weeks ago. Democrats are still desperately trying to use Donald Trump um, and trying to run against Donald Trump because that was a great thing for them, right? He was kind of crazy. And so that was a pretty easy thing for them to do. Now that they're having to stand on their own policies, it's going to be an uphill battle because their policies suck and they're really bad. And especially over the past year and a half, you add into that the pandemic, the lockdowns, masking mandates, vaccine mandates, um, shutting down schools. The list goes on here. Um, Having the FBI come investigate parents for simply showing up at the school board meetings. Like there is going to be a reaction to this. This is the first time parents are finally getting to show up and vote against what has happened to them over the past year and a half under the pandemic. And I think that education and school choice will continue to be the dominant issue. It certainly was in this campaign. And I think that that's a great thing for people like us who you know, don't really like either of the two main parties, but if we can get school choice done with some Republicans, that would be fantastic. That would be a huge silver lining to COVID.
0: Yeah, I mean, Democrats because they're not. I mean, libertarians study economics a lot, and trade offs are at the heart of that. And so, for every government action, there's a reaction, whether predicted or uh, you know, an unpredicted consequence. And so, um, one of the the consequences of I, I think school shutdowns. You can listen, Democrats. You can have mandates across the board for whatever you want, but there's going to be a cost to that. It may well be a second term for Donald Trump. So, you, you, you I think they have existed somewhat in this reality that we're right, we're going to be self righteously right. And anybody who doesn't agree with us is just one of these labels. And I think it says a lot that you have a 15 point swing, mainly in. Uh, suburban females, which seem to be the the power base, <laughs> the 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 block that is swinging a lot of different issues, both white and black females in the suburbs, uh, swinging these elections. It happened in Georgia. It happened here. Um, it happened in New Jersey, and you know the school issue. I don't know how much you followed the Loudoun County stuff. Um, I can give a summation, or if you want to talk about it, if if you've kind of followed, because this, this kind of became the issue in Virginia. Not a lot of people have heard about it.
1: Yeah, I think it'd be great to give a summary because, to be honest, I think there are conflicting narratives around what happened in that bathroom. Of course, we've seen... The right try to make this into a transsexual issue and transgender bathrooms issue. Um, From my research, that actually has nothing to do with the actual events that happened. It seems like this actually is just an instance of rape. Um, So if you want to give a more detailed summary than that. um, But I think it's important to note that like there are competing narratives over what happened here. But certainly it was something that animated the public.
0: Yeah, there's both sides have behaved badly in this. I think there's no doubt about it. The media has not helped the partisan media. Um, Loudoun County schools, you know, there was a sexual assault in a bathroom. The, uh, they were asked about it in a school board meeting. The, the, they chose to not talk about it and say nothing happened. It was very clear to the community that there had been a sexual assault. One of the parents, if not the parent of the girl, I think was, uh, became physical and f- physically angry. Uh, there was a physical altercation. He went to jail. He was later, uh, I think it, it after it was proven. I don't know if the charges have been dropped yet. Um, But they've also had a lot of different issues with the school board lying about the curriculum or not knowing what's being taught in the school or, you know, I I mean, I saw one video of a guy in Loudoun County yesterday saying, critical race theory was the most important thing I voted on. Okay, what's critical race theory? And the guy had no clue what it was. So it's sort of like this, for some people, a catch-all, for some people, it's a very serious thing. But I think the the uh, the overwhelming theme was the dismissal of concern. You know, it wasn't just about you know the the MSNBC panels want to make this about you know white lash and a white backlash against uh, trying to teach race in schools. But when you dig into the Loudoun County and school and apologies, I have some laryngitis. Um, it just seems like they didn't take any of the parents' concerns seriously. They kept lying to them on a repeated basis over a long term. There was a Facebook group of the school board administrators that were doxing parents and children. Uh, it just got out of hand. And then you have Terry McAuliffe. Uh, McAuf- Rush Limbaugh used to call him Terry McAuliffe. And that has been in my <laughs> brain all day. McAuliffe. I think it works. Yeah, Terry was the chief of staff for Clinton. He ran the DNC for a long time. He's been a, a 30-year... Cretan in virginia politics um but you know he he brings in randy weingarten the head of the uh the unions to stump for him the night before the campaign like you couldn't find a less likable person to come and and uh, stump for you but his message throughout this was you don't get to decide what schools teach parents it's on us we get to learn a- a- randy gets to outline that and that doesn't really work well when you dismiss people's concerns
1: It really doesn't. And when it comes to the critical race theory issue, this is one that I just get frustrated about because it does it doesn't have a defined meaning, right? It kind of is a catch all bucket. Um, but certainly there's been a lot of dishonesty around it. If you look at critical race theory and what it actually is at the collegiate level where it originated, no, that is probably not being taught in most schools. If you look at what is being taught in schools though, I think most of what, um, most parents would define as critical race theory is there. And that would be talking about problems with white people. It would be talking about, um, the need for white people to take blame of certain issues have happened in the past would be talking about equity versus equality and and these kinds of tones that are definitely present in our curriculum and that are definitely present increasingly in our um, society. And so I think that when we see parents pushing back on that and they get shut down and told this isn't happening, parents feel gaslit and rightfully so. And I think that ultimately- we see parents beginning to really rise up and push back. And I think COVID has again, given them this really great picture into the children's classroom because they've had Zoom at home. They've been able to actually hear what's going down in their children's classroom. And for the first time, they're starting to recognize that a lot of what's happening in the classroom doesn't align with their values probably is a lot of busy work. You know, I'm, I was homeschooled. I've said for years, so many parents could homeschool and they think that it's this out of reach thing. It's not most homeschooled kids do school for two hours, three hours a day, max. There's a a lot of co-ops and um, partnerships you can join with other local homeschoolers to do this kind of work. And we see consistently that homeschooled kids test better, um, do better in life, make more money. And so as a whole, I think there's a lot of parents are waking up and saying, hang on a second. Why am why are we spending this much money? You know, fifteen thousand dollars per kid per year is the average in public schools for this result. You know, it's almost double what we pay for public schools and what we pay for private schools and probably even a third of that for homeschooling. And yet we get these results in the public schools. And so they're beginning to recognize that their child is not getting the education that they thought they were getting. They're hearing things taught in the curriculum that don't align with their values. And this is the problem with the public education system as a whole. It is a government monopoly. It does not give parents the ability to weigh in on how they want their child educated, on the values that they want them to be taught. And so, really, all of this trickles back to the problems with government schools as a whole and why we need things like school choice that would easily answer issues over curriculum, issues over mandates, and masking and lockdowns. You know, if you're a parent who's freaked out by a disease that kids barely catch and has less than 1% death rate, but you want to bubble wrap them, fine. Go hang out with other parents like that. Put your kid in that kind of school. Let the rest of us take our money and go to normal schools and live in peace. If you're somebody who wants their kid taught, um, you know, Marxist leaning theory around equity, then fine. Group together and have your kid go do that. Let us take our money and go spend it on educational curriculums that actually teach them how to think instead of what to think and really help them have a more holistic viewpoint of the world. So ultimately, all this comes back to the need for for school choice. But right now where it stands, parents have every right to be outraged. They have been gaslit. They have been lied to. They have been shut down. Um, many of them tried to go through the proper channels of pushing back over the past year and a half, showing up at their school boards. This is amazing. You know, for people like me, when they've asked, people have asked me for years, how do I get involved in, in politics? I'm like, go get involved with your local school board. Just show up. Have more power. <laughs> right. Just show up. And then when parents finally do that, we wouldn't let a lot of them in. We would only let a certain number of them speak. We'd shut them down. And then lastly, we finally see this coordinated effort between the Biden administration and the National School Boards Association to literally use our law enforcement agencies against parents and label them domestic terrorists. I think that was a final straw for many people. And again, now that they're getting the chance to actually vote and push back, I think we can continue to see what happened in Virginia matriculate across the country.
0: Yeah, there's nothing more personal than... I think for parents than what's happened to kids over the last year. I don't think it, it is a you know a right wing thing. of oh, The COVID deniers and they they just don't in you know, their kids and blah 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 and the masks. It's literally every sector of of the political sphere in my life that I talk to. Um, COVID has impacted children the hardest. You know, the kids that have lost access to their social circles, they've been, you know, it's it's uh, one thing for my 38-year-old tired behind to be sitting in a chair all day because I do it anyways, but it's different for my seven-year-old niece. It's It's been a very difficult year for them, and, and there are a lot of parents across the board going... If my kid doesn't go back to school this fall, I mean, and you and I heard it from people across the political spectrum. And I think when there you had in Loudoun County, one uh, teacher who was encouraged to speak. And then when he did and didn't toe the line was fired, you know, or there's Thomas Jefferson, this uh, high achieving school in Virginia that. It was found that there were just it was the majority of this STEM school was Asians, and so they changed the formula to decrease the amount of Asians, which exploded the the meritocracy debate. You know, and people have very strong feelings in America about meritocracy. I mean the 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 idea, Hannah, that if you have the skills to go to a STEM school because you have an engineer's brain, you should go. We should nurture that. We should encourage that, and not try to put you know, round. Now, I mean, but you and I both agree, I think, that there should also be a mind, a mindful eye towards, you know, pulling people into different social circles. There should be an eye towards increasing diversity. Like, where's that line? Because I think a lot of, of people on the right kind of don't want to have that conversation. It's uncomfortable for them because they don't want to be seen as like some flaming pink-haired liberal. But like, wh- how, how do you find the balance as you navigate through these stories of making sure that we are um, pulling people out of disadvantaged situations, giving them opportunities that they might not have because they're lower income or they are of a different race or they don't have the skill sets in their family to achieve things? How do we do that?
1: Yeah, I think that it's two things. One, we have to recognize that you do not fix inequality with central planning. We have tried and tried and tried that throughout history and it has always just hurt more people and pushed those on the margins further into their disadvantages. So that's that's first and foremost. Um, I think that fits perfectly in line with our theory of libertarianism, which would say that government is not capable of eradicating these things, but we as individuals and at the local level, we can address those things. And I think that as good capitalists, we should be doing that, right? Like as a hiring manager for fee, when I'm hiring, I am thinking about that. I am thinking, what obstacles do we maybe have in our advertisements and where we're placing advertisements in our interview processes, um, in our language that describes the job that might preclude certain people from applying? What um, kind of questions are we asking that might prevent us from finding out about skill sets that would make us more diverse and a more well-rounded staff versus things that are more um, exclusive or might end up with the same kind of pool over and over again. These are things that we can be doing and that we should be doing. Um, and the second thing that I think we can do is to look to eradicate government barriers that have created much of that inequality at a systemic level, right? So I think there's a very big difference in saying government can fix these things versus acknowledging government has created some of these things because government central planning, again, always goes wrong and hurts the very people it claims to help. And that's certainly true in America's history history, you know, for a long time. We did have overt racism in this country, and much of that was codified into our laws. And that didn't just go away as our society evolved. We still see a lot of systemic racism in our laws. Uh, we still see a lot of those practices having disproportionate impacts. And so we can look to get rid of those kinds of laws and overturn them, just to give one of you know thousands of examples. But there was a law in Louisiana that got overturned just in the past two years or so that had been implemented um, after the Reconstruction, basically to water down the presence of Black people. On juries, And it essentially said that you only needed 10 people out of 12 on a jury to give a verdict, right? And we had transcripts of them saying while they were passing this law specifically, that it was meant to undermine the presence of black people on juries, which they had been constitutionally forced to start implementing. So those are the kinds of things. And again, that is a tiny example out of thousands that we could go back in and look to eliminate and get rid of and say, what are we doing in our practices and our laws and our courts that are still causing these disadvantages? And I think, again, public education is a part perfect example of that. We still assign schools based off of zip codes. Well, what is racist about that? Let's think back to the 1950s and 60s, where we had something called redlining that said people could only buy houses in certain areas if they were people of color. That pushed them into generational poverty. Those schools tend to be lesser funded. They tend to have poor um, test scores. And we continue to see children who go to them, not graduate, not get the same test scores, not go on to college. And so that creates a cycle of poverty. Um, That is systemic racism. That is a problem that could, again, be fixed by something like school choice that removes government, gives the power back to the individual, back to the families, and lets them say, this is the best course of action for my child.
0: Yeah, I mean I think it should be noted that Ruby Bridges, the first black person to go to a white school in Little Rock, part of the Little Rock Nine, she's sixty-seven years old, which is three years older than my dad. You know, so that is not that that far back. But I I before we move on to New Jersey, I mean I just want to give a shout out to people like the Starfish Initiative or to the Lumina Foundation, um, which was Sally Mae, which was converted into a foundation, which is a now the biggest nonprofit in the country. Based they're both based here in Indianapolis. And their whole goal is basically using private means to build better networks of power for economically disadvantaged people and they're going to do it way better than a school system that is forced by the state to put together some plan that people spend four commission meetings on and then put in a drawer and never look at Um, because it's going to be much more personal much more hands-on so um. Yeah, that is uh, a little bit about Virginia with Terry McAuliffe uh, losing 48 to 50 to Glenn Youngkin. Now, New Jersey, I think, is a different story. There's a bunch of reasons like in Virginia, for instance. I mean, we didn't even get to Biden uh, and Biden's dusty presidency that's that's taking place <laughs> there. Um, and the fact that, that the, <laughs> like the second most active duty military members, 154,000 are in Virginia, uh, the first is California Virginia's three times smaller I mean how did how did did Afghanistan play into it did uh, Biden's you know fumbling I mean Biden promised to be boring and uh, middle of the road and a uniter and then comes in with his massive progressive ad- agenda and just completely uh, pulls the rug out from uh, under the base that voted for him so not surprised that they got punished now in New Jersey it seems to me, that it's more about COVID restrictions because they had very stringent COVID restrictions in New Jersey. One of our co-hosts, um, uh, Julia, just moved from of Liberty Explained just moved from New Jersey down to Miami, uh, and that's because of the COVID restrictions. It it took basically all three of her careers over the last eighteen months. And so longtime time New, Gen- New Jersey Senate president loses to truck driver Ed Durr, who spent $153 on his campaign. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you saw the ads, but they're hilarious. Uh, and Phil Murphy, the sitting governor, squeaks it out against a little-known uh, Republican who, one thing that should be mentioned, Youngkin and Jack Citarelli ran moderate Republican Mitch Daniels-like campaigns and not Trumpy campaigns, and uh, he barely, barely lost to Phil Murphy. I mean, what does this result in New Jersey say to you?
1: Well, I think I think you're spot on with all of your analysis. We've certainly seen a lot of people fleeing states like New Jersey over the past year and a half. Um, I think I want to say New Jersey lost the most um, amount as far as a percentage of its population. And I think that that definitely has a lot to do with COVID. I also think it has to do with their crazy taxes. They have some of the highest property taxes in the country. And for what? like it's not like this this beautiful state with all these resources like california you at least kind of get you know amazing nature and wineries and, and the beach like what are you getting in new jersey for that not that much not very good schools covid restrictions there's a lot of reasons to leave new jersey um and i think that as a whole the economy has a lot to do with it right now. I think that's true in Virginia as well. You know, we've seen that the result of the spin, spin, spin and print, print, print policies of the Biden administration and also the Trump administration before it, but even more so by Biden has created mass inflation. People are getting poor by the second. I think people are really starting to feel the pinch. Our supply chain is a disaster, largely due to unions and really bad government backed union contracts that have prevented us from automating, have prevented us from opening up around the clock. We see Biden continuing to push um, for things like like the PRO Act, right, that has already failed in California and also contributed to the supply chain issues. Um, And one thing I read that was really notable about Steve Sweeney, which was the Democrat um, Senate president in New Jersey that lost to Edward Durr, um, was that he was a huge big labor advocate and actually, um, part of the AB5, which was California's version of the PRO Act that basically eliminated contracting, independent contracting, and forced everybody back into nine to five old school jobs so unions could get a hold of their money. Um, he was really involved with that. And he lost to a truck driver who were who were some of the people most impacted because they're usually independent contractors by AB5 and would be impacted by the PRO Act should it pass. So I think that's an amazing pushback on something the Biden administration is still trying to push at the federal level that has already failed in California. Um, and so we're seeing that that's a result of that kind of policy as well. As a whole, I do think this red sweep is is a proof in the pudding that people don't like the policies now that they're not voting against Trump and they're seeing what the Biden administration is all about. They don't like what they're doing. They're still trying to push a crazy new spending bill that has um, a ton of really harmful ideas within it while we're already in the middle of mass inflation and massive debt. So I, again, I just think that people are are recognizing that these guys don't have good ideas. The policies are not adding up, um, and it's not working for them. So I think that New Jersey's no exception to that, but it is more interesting what happened there because it is such a blue state. Um, and I think this is true even in, in the Virginia race. I've seen so many parents and I know this is anecdotal, but I've seen so many parents online that have said I'm a Democrat." but I will not vote for them because of these educational COVID policies. This is actually moving people. People are becoming single issue voters on this. And it makes sense because again, the educational system. It's not just that their kids are losing educational years that they might not ever be able to make up. It's not just that they're finding out that the curriculum's not that good and they're not getting that good of an education. It's also that they're having to try to figure out how to homeschool them at home, you know, without being prepared to do that. They're having to rearrange work schedules. They're having to figure out childcare and they're having to deal with the fact that kids have this growing rate of depression and anxiety and mental health issues because of the lockdown. So I think that we really do see like the mama and papa bears coming out in defense of their kids right now.
0: Yeah. I I have no source for this. It was, um, Something that my fiance got from her women's group at church. So, but she said that the, they were talking about anxiety in kids, and that the average five year old has the same level of anxiety as a mental patient in the 30s. I have to verify that, but like it feels real, um, and that's really all that matters with facts these days, is if how it feels. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think the uh, one I did a public affairs program dedicated to nonprofits here in town last year through the COVID pandemic. And every single one that I talked to was trying to pick up the slack of what was lost in schools because one of the unseen parts of the pandemic is that schools are now ground zero for welfare distribution, I guess, or the social safety net on the local, federal and state level. And so having these kids out of school meant that all of these nonprofits, some that weren't even dedicated to kids, were now trying to figure out how to get food to kids how to like check in on them because the amount of child abuse skyrocketed because the not the mandatory reporters were no longer there and and that safety net was gone uh and i you know and then now you're dealing with the constant like talk to any teacher like this this is one mistake that libertarians and conservatives make is that they beat up on teachers unions and they message it in a way that turns off teachers teachers right now hate their school more than you do because the rules keep changing and they change every other week. And if you're a parent, you know this because your kid gets COVID. Well, now all the kids have to stay home and they could be out for six weeks. And some of that doesn't make sense. Like even if they test negative multiple times, they're out for six weeks. Uh, just depends on the school. So a lot of this stuff just doesn't make sense. Teachers are frustrated with all this stuff too. Um, and I think we ought to keep an eye out for that. But you, you made the point about some of these progressive policies Uh, falling short Uh, did you hear about buffalo and the mayor's race there no okay so buffalo's mayor byron brown wasn't even on the ballot uh, for the city election and a democratic socialist candidate named india walton uh ran for the, the primary beat a traditional democrat in the primary in september the mayor started his own writing campaign for himself and And you know politics, like a writing campaign is virtually impossible to win. Mm-hmm. He won by 10,000 votes, 58.83 <laughs> to 41.17 percent against the, the AOC yeah, the AOC-backed candidate. In Seattle, a, Repu- <laughs> a Republican, Ann Davidson leads police abolitionist Nicole Thomas Kenny in Seattle city attorney race in Minneapolis. The uh ballot measure on defunding the police collapsed um, uh, defunding the police is kind of one of those catch-alls uh, as well um, but like the the parent issue, people watched you know what happened in Seattle and the taking of property and uh, really all across the country in Minneapolis and were told these are peaceful riots and they weren't peaceful at all they were they were violent and you know time and time again you kept hearing like, Nobody wants to defund the police. Why are you people bringing this up? What does defund the police mean, and what does it mean moving forward that it it failed 56 to 43 in Minneapolis?
1: Defund the police means that Democrats are abysmally bad at naming things and coming up with slogans like... I, you know, I'm, you know, I'm somebody who's done criminal justice reform for a very, very long time. It's, it's definitely my top issue. And and I've become radicalized after all the corruption I've seen in the system and, um, and really, you know, went from doing like reentry and workforce development type work to really trying to shake the system down. <laughs> like, I'd love to see it crumble. Um When I heard the defund the police slogan come out, though, I just put my head in my hands and I was like, there goes 10 years worth of work on our side to like move the right on these issues. Because I think if you were to talk about the fact that our police budgets are bloated, that we are not getting actual um, public safety in, in exchange for that money. If we were to look at the number of services, we now have police covering the amount of laws they're enforcing no true advocate of limited government could actually stand by the way our current system is structured. But the defund the police slogan just totally put a stop to that conversation. <laughs> like it really um, animated the right and, and shored up support, I think, for police and and neglected to really explain what the vast majority of people mean by it. And of course, you know, on the left, there's something people need to understand on the right and within libertarian circles. I've actually worked around people on the left my entire political career. I've I've been very privileged to get to do that because I think it's prevented me from stereotyping and strawmanning them. And the reality is most people on the left are not these far left loony progressives. There are about four or five of them running around at the national level and the media elevates them because they love the narrative and because the media might lean pretty far left. And it makes the people on the right and libertarians think that everybody on the left is over there and fringy. They're not. That's why Joe Biden Biden won. He ran as a very moderate, old blue dog type Democrat. That's still where most of the party is. Um, And then you've got these very far left extremists who are really in the like, Um, anarchist, Marxist kind of camp. And they really do mean abolition when they say defund the police. And they really do mean no prisons when they say in prisons. That is not where most people are. Um, And so you've got, you know, this whole left and right coalition that's been doing fantastic work on criminal justice reform at both the state and national level for decades now, and really having a lot of actual progress in that regard that has improved community safety, while also ensuring we uphold individual liberty and and try to limit the government in many aspects where it had become bloated. Then you had these far-left activists come in and basically ruin that by running around screaming, defund the police. At the end of the day, no police department has been defunded. That is total nonsense. Almost every single department actually got a tremendous raise over the past year, especially following the BLM rallies. We saw them really start to use that as a wedge issue, and their unions used it to kind of hold many states and cities um, hostage to get more money. And so we've seen nothing of the sort of defunding the police, But yet you'll continue to see people on the right now say, oh, look at this crime spike. That's because they defunded the police. No, it's not. It's because the police are ineffective at their job as always. But at the end of the day, I'm not surprised at all the defund the police vote failed. Even in Seattle, again, I think while Seattle is blue, I do not think the vast majority of people in these blue states are over here in the Marxist camp or in the like total anarchy camp. I think most people believe they need police. Um, Where I think we should be able to meet and agree is that policing needs major reform. Major reform. It is super corrupt. There are so many issues within it i'd like to get back to having that conversation but until these you know kind of whack jobs start stop running around with a slogan i don't know that we'll get to
0: yeah it just feels like the media presents everybody at zero and a hundred you know they'll take the video of the lady screaming on the subway about not wanting to wear a mask and like present that as all republicans and it just seems to me that the country's at 60 and 40 And, and the media and politicians have not figured that out that, you know, the, the people who are trying to build a living on content haven't figured that out. But in reality, like adults are starting to stand up and go, all right, my political apathy is over. You people are, 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 you're out of here. Like no more QAnon, no more, you know, defund the police. Let's figure this out. Like, because in all these issues that we talked about today, it's. Yeah, I want my kid to learn exactly who Christopher Columbus was. I'm not afraid of my kid learning about who Christopher Columbus was. I don't think that, like Tucker Carlson said two nights ago, the world will crumble into Somalia if they learn about (laughs) real history. Um... You know, but I also don't want, I want to be the one to be involved in that conversation, what that looks like. It feels very much like the sex ed debates. I'm, you know, I graduated in 02, you know, so I went to school in the middle of the the sex ed debates and all that. I mean, that that's kind of over, but, you know, and then in COVID, it's like, I just want my friends and family to be safe, but I also don't want, you know, all these odious restrictions. And I want police reform and criminal justice reform, but I don't want abolition, like, The extremes are burning themselves out. I mean, that's sort of how I read this. Yunkin keeps Trump at an arm's length, wins. New Jersey, arm's length, wins. Uh, Rejecting Trump is, you know, the Mitch Daniels strategy here in Indiana was do not talk about social issues. No more social issues. Do not talk about it. None of the culture war stuff. Only focus on government reform, expanding school choice, and making this state a functional state. And he's the most, po- there's a cult here. You have to be in the cult of Mitch. <laughs> you know, Mike Pence comes in as governor, owes one to the Christian right, does rifra, and his, his gubernatorial run was such a disaster that he was going to lose if Trump didn't pick him. You know, and I really think that's where the majority of Republicans are, like you said, with Democrats. Like, when do the adults start to kind of step up and go, I have my point of view, I'm not going to apologize it, but it doesn't mean that I need to hate the other guy for theirs.
1: I hope it's soon. I really do hope it's soon. And because I think you're right. I think most people are far more in the middle in this country. I think that most people are exhausted with the far extremes of both parties. I think they're tired of the culture wars. And they really, I think right now, need to focus on the things that are hurting people the most, right? I think you know we were kind of in a period of luxury for some time where things were going pretty well. And it enabled us to focus on stupid things like culture wars, because we didn't have a problematic economy. We didn't have high unemployment. We didn't have the great resignation trend that continues to move forward. So, there's a lot of more pressing things happening now. Um, I think that that is hopefully galvanizing the normal people in the country to kind of find ways to come together. I know I'm exhausted by it. I'm tired of the infighting. I'm tired of of having to debate over people like Trump and QAnon. They're crazy. Like they should never have been prominent in our political discourse in the first place. Um, and same is true for people like AOC and Bernie. I'm ready for them to be treated like the weird fringe people that they are, and like Bernie was treated throughout most of his work in politics. Right, like this guy's weird like yeah he's there let's ignore him and move on and like let's get back to getting things done that actually matter and, act- and actually impact people's day-to-day ultimately the co- the culture wars i think are problematic on both sides because they come back to both sides desire to force their way of life on the other half of the country and that needs to stop and the way to make that stop is to reduce the government
0: very good very well said hannah cox hosted the podcast titled based with hannah cox hannah d cox.com Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to plug? I mean, uh, you know, is there an episode of your podcast that you're especially proud of that you'd think people ought to start with?
1: Yeah. Well, we actually just released our one year anniversary podcast. So I'm very excited about that. It's on foreign policy. So it's a very comprehensive episode. It'll make your blood boil. So that's definitely a good one to start with. My personal favorite though, over the past year is still my capitalism issue. It's called, I don't think you know what capitalism is. And it's just a perfect little link to drop in the comment threads when people <laughs> are, you know, saying capitalism is slavery or fascism or something you know, crazy like that. But yeah, I would love for people to check it out. They can go to HannahDcox.com for all of my articles and videos or find me on social media, Hannah D Cox on almost every channel. So hope to connect with people there.
0: Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me, Chris.
0: Thanks for joining us here on the Chris Spangle Show. We appreciate your time and we will talk to you soon.